Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick, and we're back for part two of the discussion of the offense against the Houston Texans in that divisional game. Part two, we're going to start with the offensive line, but joining us here from PFF is Gordon McGinnis, their content director. And uh, Gordon, thanks again for coming back. If you missed the first episode, you missed a lot of great content. We'll talk about this, but Gordon, thanks for joining us again. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, that first part of the show, we talked a lot about, about snap division, about the running backs, uh, about the, the use of Dalvin Cook and, and whether that could increase uh, about Lamar's use of his opportunity set, which you know is obviously a very common topic. Uh, Gordon had a fairly hilarious discussion of of him, his first experience with American cold as opposed to uh, UK cold, which is a little different apparently. Uh, and uh, uh, he has a lot riding on this next game because he gets to go to the Super Bowl and uh, has a spot there with PFF in the press box, I assume, right? I think it's actually technically the... Uh, and celery press box, so Fox it's not like main. Yes. <laughs> so there's there's a there's a great story uh, on the PFF NFL show from after the Super Bowl last year. So Sam and Steve were both there. Steve wasn't able to go to the game. Steve ate fifty chicken wings. Steve is like six foot tall, so fifty chicken wings for him is probably like me and you know thirty. Um, and that's probably giving myself a little more a little more credit there. But Sam was at the game. And his, uh, he just got like a little lunchbox. Like, you know, I know you see on uh, social media sometimes the press box spreads or these yep. <clears throat> incredible things. His was like a little lunchbox. Uh, he said it was like a really cramped seat that Steve wouldn't have, wouldn't have fitted in anyway. And I think that's exactly where we are uh, going to be this year. But I will just be very, very happy to be there. So I don't care that uh, I could be having a better spread of food if I was in the, the main press box. I'm just glad to be in the stadium. Uh, there you go. I I can I not really as much from personal experience, but I know press live for free food. You don't make a lot of money in the press, generally speaking, and and you know the the, the free food you get, and particularly in the Orioles press box when I was doing the Stats Inc. Inks game there, you got crab cakes every night. I mean, it's always on the menu. It's just like that's a that's a high end you know restaurant item. You end up you pay a lot for a crab cake in Baltimore, but uh, but that was one of the really nice things, and people would would uh, definitely dig into those pretty heavily. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Let's talk a little offensive line here uh, in general. Um, you know, we, we've already kind of reconciled some scoring between PFF and, and, uh, and my system. I think we're extremely close in this game, but the whole offensive line had a pretty good game. One pressure allowed one quarterback hit. I have them for scored for all three of the sacks uh, allocated to them. Uh, even though one was on an ample time. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Two of the three sacks allocated to them with one of them coming on an ample time and space uh, play. Um, and um, the the aggregate pressure rate of 40%, it was 10 out of 25, is a little bit high. But uh, honestly, um, some of that, uh, some Jackson holding the ball, certainly. And uh, um, I think the offensive line in general had a had a very 
solid overall game with one major exception. Solid, I think, probably sums it up pretty perfectly. And yeah, and I think we we only have one of the sacks in the offensive line, but we've talked about this before that the definition for us, once the pressure forces the quarterback to scramble, unless it's on that initial player, then we don't call it a sack on the offensive line and we would charge them with a pressure and then it becomes like a cleanup sack for whoever gets it effectively. Okay, so I, I did not actually know that. This is, I believe, the first time you've, or it's the first time I remember it. Let's put it that way, because I'm <laughs> at that age. I, I forget a lot of stuff. But that's that's interesting, because initial pressure is always gets a share of the sack with me at a minimum. And then it, it could be somebody else gets a share. It could be some is on the quarterback and some is just on the pressure, but it can be multiple multiple players getting it. But that's, it's actually, it makes me think we're, we're scoring this a lot more similarly because you guys have two things you're doing here. One is you're giving integer counts of your sacks, quarterback hits, and hurries that show up on the website. And then the second thing you're doing behind the scenes is you're giving people this underlying plus two to minus two score, which doesn't show up anywhere that a, that a person paying money other than a team can get, right? Yes, that's correct. And it's like, so for, for pass blocking, for example, um, and this is why, so one of the things that we do, I think some of this stuff is available now, is we talk about um, for edge defenders, defensive linemen, uh, pressure rate, but also pass rush win rate. And I think pass rush win rate is is somewhere on um, premium status these days. So that's looking at plays whereby pressure wasn't generated, but a, a win was still had by the by the defensive lineman. So that could be a play where uh, they're held and it you know causes a holding um, call, or it could be a play where the ball's out really quickly. So, and that's. I had a conversation. I, I'm in a, a group chat with a lot of Scottish NFL fans. And there is sadly uh, one prominent, prominent like within our little group, Steelers fan in that group, who has harped on at me for months now about PFF's opinion on TJ Watt versus Miles Garrett. And Steelers fans are very, very anti PFF. And, you know, they think that pass rush win rate is a made up stat. Generally speaking, the reason why pass rush win rate is valuable is because. It is way more predictive than pressure rate. It's more predictive than total pressures, which in turn is more predictive than sack totals and sack numbers. So the the only thing I will say on the TJ Watt thing, I think when you're deciding on an award like defensive player of the year, if you want to give a lean to a guy who has a high sack total in a single season, I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. If you want to base your opinion on, you know, the value in sacks, because I think you could make the case that we don't always value them as highly as they could be. I think that's fine. I would just say that things like pass rush win rate are going to give you more predictive nature for future. You, you know, that's, first of all, that's, it's good, good to know that you guys look at it that way, but I, I'll say this. I want pass rush win rate. I want to, to understand the predictive stats and I want them separated for me. So I don't look at them in one number. So I, I what I don't want is for the PFF grade to be, a, a composite of a predictive grade and a look back grade. I, I look for the PFF grade to be more of a of, of the baseball box score. What did happen in that game? And and that's where I, I you know I'm perfectly happy with player performance moving around game to game because it does. I mean, you, you certainly if you if you look at baseball, you go two for four with two homers one day, and you go zero for five with with nothing the next day, and and it, people understand that that's it's natural for that to happen, and somehow it's not okay all, all of a sudden for offensive linemen for that to happen in terms of you know big high leverage plays are given up from time to time. 
I, I'm I'm perfectly okay with that. And I'm perfectly calm with it, and I do still want the predictive information, but but I I don't want to have somebody else tell me how to mix those two components. Yes, yeah, and and I think that's fair, and I think that's the what this came up recently with the the JJ Watt stuff, where JJ Watt went on Pat McAfee and opened his uh, opened his uh, segment with uh, PFF sucks, have a nice day or something like that. I think was the was the quote, which. Um, He's entirely entitled to to his opinion, um, but like part of that is the zero to hundred grading system builds up and extrapolates everything to to a much bigger level. And his his grievance was on CJ Stroud versus Jordan Love, and they had pretty much identical stats. Both benefited from the receivers making big plays after the catch. Stroud benefited like a little bit more. And Stroud also had a dropped interception. And one of the funniest things I saw, I don't use ESPN's QBR uh, much, if at all, but someone worked out that if you took both of their stats together and if you just changed one of Stroud's incompletions to an interception, his ESPN QBR would drop by roughly the same percentage that uh, the difference was in PFF grade between the two because effectively it's just like one um one thing there and it, on the zero to 100 scale um like one play can swing a single game grade quite significantly mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely definitely you something you, you you notice i've been very impressed with timo riska this year and the stuff he's producing on relative play of offensive linemen and i don't does that pass through your desk in terms of it being content or is it is it is he like outside of your group because he's R and D or t- talk a little bit about that maybe with yeah him. so he he's outside he's outside um, the group um, and to be honest, correctly outside the group because he has an understanding of statistical things that I simply don't um, like I'm not any kind of mathematician I'm not someone who is uh, you know any kind of um, Python or R wizard when it comes to these things uh, so it's very much just something whereby there is a set amount of R&D things that he will produce on a weekly basis for the content side and he has effectively free reign to to do what he does there and I think the stuff you're talking about there like the the charts where it is uh the the kind of like pair play grade for pass rushers for interior or edge defenders but it's also matched up against what the expected grade would be based on going up against an offensive lineman and Steve Steve Palazzolo had a good point on this in the podcast recently where he talked about the fact that the context is important, but we don't feel that it is wise or the right thing for us to assign the context for you. It's better for us to be like, here's what the grade was. And if you want to line up, you know, if you if you have a left tackle and he goes up against an elite edge defender for every snap of the game and has a 75 PFF grade, and you have a left tackle who goes up against a bottom 10 edge defender and he has an 80 overall grade you can after the fact apply that context and say okay you know let's look at this and where it gets a little bit dicey where i think we're right to not do that is you know if you go up against uh let's take ronnie stanley for example there were to come a point in ronnie stanley's career whereby his play dropped off because of the injuries. But if you were assigning something based on how good he is as an offensive tackle, there would have been a period of a good number of games where you'd be basing how good his opponent was against him in the player he was pre-injury. So yeah. that's where I think the context is is better applied after the fact. 
You know, that's a that's a very interesting point. It's one Neil has made to me many times is that is that it's just too hard to um, separate out all the pieces. It's kind of like separating pitching and defense in terms of of, of what's going on, and they're inexorably linked in so many ways. You you just can't you can't separate all the pieces like trying to split Siamese twins or conjoined twins, um, and it's just very difficult without killing both of them. But it's it's a uh, um, that's something that I, I I I understand the point. And yet PFF is in the best position to start that modeling path. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, that people like Timo there are basically saying, look, if, if we can't do this, then nobody else can. So we're going to come up with a, with a starting point here. And then you get the discussion started. And, and all modeling should be an evolving process anyway. Yes. Somebody else comes up with the next good model or somebody else vets that model with them, said you didn't consider A and B and C. Um, but I think what, what Timo's got with it, he's got an N-factor model. It's not all competition-based. It's, it's also down at distance and things like that that are included in, in his N-factor model. Um, I, I was just very impressed by it. And, and so yeah. if you look at those graphs, you'll have the left to right is how difficult the assignment is, but it's the vertical that matters, how far up you are on the vertical, which is how far above expectation for your uh, set of assignments you were. And it's, it's, it's definitely a new look. One thing else came out of my conversations with him, and that was he said something I've been saying for kind of years, and I, I hope I'm not getting him in any trouble for this, but, but, but he said, I've basically been telling people, look, keep the pass and run blocking separate. Look at the pass and run blocking. Each of them are fairly well-crafted numbers, but it's when it, when when PFF combines those two numbers, they, they don't mean as much anymore because you're trying to do it based on where the differences are by position as opposed to what the value of those differences are, which, which is going to tend to, for interior linemen, overweight their run blocking relative to pass blocking. And I wondered, is something new on the PFF horizon for that in terms of a formula or a methodology? I don't know um, if anything is on the horizon. Um, I, I think we're always looking at ways to improve those things, so it wouldn't surprise me if there is. But like team was certainly not in any trouble for those uh, that kind of view because that's similar. I I put together our team of the week every week on a on a Monday and then update it on a Tuesday during the season. And what I do for offensive linemen is I go in and I sort it by pass blocking grade, and I then look at like what the run blocking grade was next to it. I don't look at the overall grade. I go, okay, for an offensive tackle, pass blocking is most important. Let me find the best pass blocker as long as they weren't terrible as a run blocker. There you if go. they were terrible as a run blocker, okay, let's rethink these things because it will be. There will be games where you run the ball a lot. The, the Atlanta Falcons offensive lineman, they have a couple of guys. Chris Lindstrom, not so much anymore because he's improved as a pass blocker. But they had a couple of guys who uh, a guy at center this year and drew dalman really good run blocker not a good pass blocker by our grading mm -hmm. system and if you went by his overall grade we would have had him in our pffl pro team and stuff like that but that's not really that wouldn't really be a fair reflection right tyler linderbaum last year was the big one for the ravens and a guy who was a very bad pass blocker one of the worst in the league at center and and a great run blocker right away as a rookie um and this year it's it's you know we've missed out in some ways in Baltimore on the incredible contrast between these two seasons by Linderbaum, the way he's, you know, brought himself up from being a, you know, an average NFL center, uh, who was a good starting point, by the way, playing as a rookie at an average level is terrific to being, you know, a, a near, well, he is a pro bowler. Uh, we'll, we'll just call him a pro bowl center. Um, I, in, in one year, it's, just, it's, it's all about that improvement in pass blocking. And we were kind of, we, we, 
Baltimore fan bases are, are are screaming the whole year that that he was like that all the whole time. Well, no, he wasn't. You, you missed <laughs> out on this great change in a, in a in a in a really fine young player. All right, enough of that. <laughs> let's let's uh, move on to Ronnie Ronnie Stanley. We we we've talked about this pre-show and the first part of the show. Looked the best he has all season. I think a couple of things I really noted: more flexibility, um, move better in space. Uh, some of the blocking in space in particular, uh, just remarkable after that first, I'm not giving you my hand play. Yeah. <laughs> the, it, it was a, it was quite a, um, incredible thing to see because Lamar Jackson is not a player who ever really looks annoyed at other players. Yeah. Um, and then there was the comments that he was really vocal in the locker room at halftime. And, um, so that's really good to see, but on the Stanley front, I, it was great to see, I'll say this anytime we ever talk about Ronnie Stanley. I think probably one of the one of the greatest travesties in Ravens team history that the injury happened when it happened and had the impact in his career that it has because just one of the most natural pass blockers to ever enter the NFL as a rookie. Not he's not a dominant run blocker. He's he's fine as a run blocker. He's good, but just so natural in pass protection. And the injury definitely had such a huge impact there. I think I'm trying to think other injuries that I think robbed the Ravens of like decade long, really good player. Maybe Lordarius Webb's um, ACL. Oh injuries. yeah, that's it. In his rookie, his rookie year, and then twelve again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just such a shame that we're not because. I, and I, the other, I talk, I talked about it a little bit. I, th- I think it was in the other show. Uh, it could have been in this one, around where the Ravens' offensive line ranks relative to mm-hmm. everyone else. And I think the Ronnie Stanley question is tied to that. A lot of people look at Ronnie Stanley and they see a player who is not as good as he used to be. I'm not going to disagree with that at all. I think that's evident to anyone watching. However, there is a big difference between how Ronnie Stanley is playing right now and has played this season yep. and below replacement level left tackle play. You know, this is not Alejandro Villanueva stepping in at left tackle, which is what the Ravens had to deal with a couple of years ago. Um, so I know there's a lot of people who are kind of clamoring for a replacement at left tackle in 2024 to, for the start of the season. I don't really think that's a, a likely outcome where I think the Ravens should approach it is try and find someone to be the 2025 starter. And I think there's, I think in this draft class, there are guys that they're going to get at the back end around one, maybe even guys in round two who come in, they either sit behind Stanley or they play left guard and they, they can kind of help in there. But that's where I, I feel like I'm definitely higher on him than a lot of people are still. Um, so it was really nice to see him have a good game this week. Most of how I feel about that, because I, I agree I think they they basically the costs of entry and in particular given this game and things change on a week to week basis here, but based on this specific game and how well he played and how much better he seems right now and looking forward to the prospect of an off season, um, I, I am I'm in the camp that you don't try and save eight million, you keep him on the roster for next year and you find a, a two year replacement plan than you have for him. The issue with the Ravens is they need to find someone who can play left tackle in this draft because otherwise you really have to get a one year replacement at left tackle and then you have to get into about the top 10 picks if you want to you know, really find your guy. Um, so if, if they wanted to get a right tackle, well, they, they, 
they could you know get a guy who's even further down the draft than that but if they if they're trying to get a left tackle it's probably got to be this year it's probably got to be a two-year guy just like you've mentioned back of the first second round Kalecio Semele think about him and where the Ravens got him in the second round um that would make a lot of sense and then you you can I, I'd like to say that's the only case of that but the other guy that they got it towards the end of the second round was was uh Terry Adam Terry so that didn't work out and and they've really got to find who that guy is at left tackle and uh, um, and, and make him a, a, a two year plan to get there. But it, it worked for hey, it worked for Jonathan Ogden uh, when they did have a good left tackle in place in 1996. Exactly. All right, I, a little bit about a scoring here. No negative events other than the false start penalty for Ronnie in this game. So it's enormous from that perspective. He was not run out of any pressures, which is something that's been happening a lot. Uh, with him in the last few weeks five missed blocks four of those were losses at the line of scrimmage some of those occurred in in the second half when the ball was out quickly anyway so that's fine you know when that occurs it's not not particularly terrible five blocks in level two and this is where i've seen a lot of the old ronnie here four pancakes made two out of two poles two highlights i didn't even give him a highlight on either of those great run blocking and space plays he basically didn't block anybody at the line came out made his only block in level two but honestly, thinking back on that, they probably are both highlights in terms of of being able to make a nice square block in level two. The first one in particular, which was the non-touchdown, went, went for 23 yards or so on the left side on fourth and one, right? Yeah. And then the second one, he 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 didn't make a square a block on it, so I probably wouldn't call it a highlight anyway, but it was enough to keep Grenard distracted for long enough to, to for um for Jackson to get get right by him. Yeah. One other thing I want to say about Ronnie is what I saw in this game was a guy who's blocking much further out from the pocket. And I really, really like to see that. So he's a very natural mirror. And you mentioned it in your comments early, very natural dancing bear. Um, even with the injury, you still see the ability to mirror is still there. In addition to all the savvy components and whatnot, the ability to mirror is there. He's just been in a, in a, in a, trap this year of giving more ground to maintain his mirror than he has in the past when it's always been part of his game to give ground to mirror and this this game what i saw is you know he's really dominating the guys opposite him and keeping them far away from you know from the cone or from the uh you know the being close enough that lamar can feel that pressure i just i'm very impressed by that from stanley in this game yeah yeah i agree uh, a for Stanley in this game, and you guys had him extremely well graded. I know 88 is a pass blocker, I think I saw, right? Yeah, he has pass block, um, 80.5 overall. Um, just best game of the year from him. And and I think to your point there, I think the big improvement in pass protection was just that anchor was there a little bit. There was one one particular play I saw shared on, on Twitter, and it was whoever the edge defender he was going up against was, had like a couple of bites to try and get around it, tried a couple of different moves and Stanley was just there pawing him away at every opportunity. Yeah, that was the one where Simpson actually came up for a help block late on that play, right? I think yeah. so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It was just, and he's, he's, he's got to be eight feet away from Lamar in terms of his spacing there. It's one of the things I, I do love taking my initial cut on offensive line scoring from the video on TV and a lot of people like they, they you know, turn their nose up at that and all. TV is far better for control of the video and for timing events on the video, both of which are critical. And I put an alt A22 mark on every single play that I need to go that back and then review something that I think I might have missed 
from not having the good depth perspective that that end zone view gives you, in particular depth of, of the field. And, and I guess it's width perspective. It's width perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think you're right. I think that's the, you know, we, we obviously do our, for our first things from broadcast because we don't have the all 22 yet when we do it, but there are things that are easier to see on broadcast because you just have a bit more control over it. Yeah. All right. That's it. Let's move on to John Simpson. Uh, sixth consecutive game at a D level and seventh in the last eight. Uh, he's actually on the DF border uh, in, in this game. I have something I still want to look at uh, again, because I was kind of, messing up my score sheet as I as I went through preparing for this episode. We're recording a little early because because Gordon lives in Scotland and whatnot, but uh uh normally they have, have about four more hours to, to kind of put this together. Picked up another holding call. You know, the, the the we talked about this a little bit in the first show. The holding the, the penalties in general, they just haven't been reduced. And I think the Ravens have got to look at their own coaching, frankly, in this regard and say, you know, why is this not working? Why are we not able to get through to this guy? And it could be it's a coaching problem. It probably is more likely a Simpson problem in terms of him just not being able to process quickly enough something about how a player is is getting free of him and the point at which he needs to let go. But if if he can't resolve this, I can't see his career lasting very long in the NFL. No, I I was a little bit surprised that you not that he wound up being the Ravens starter based on who they had in the roster in July and August, but I was a little bit surprised that they headed into the summer with that looking like it was likely going to be the case because hadn't hadn't shown in Las Vegas that he was really um a starting caliber player. And don't get me wrong, there are there's flashes there, but not not enough that I think you you trust him as a as a long term starter at all. You look at the guy, he's not really built like a guard. And he and he's a massive Adonis of a guy in terms of, you know, 6'4", 321, very long arms and whatnot. He looks much more built in terms of his, you know, vertical build and whatnot, like he'd be an offensive tackle. Um, and, and I, I kind of thought there might come a time this year where the Ravens, you know, with all the problems they've had to tackle with injury and whatnot, where they might even had him end up there. Uh, you know, they, they, as the season has wound on, McCarry has been sometimes serviceable, sometimes not generally above the replacement level as a replacement, which is good. Um, and I, fair enough, fair statement. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. And, and on the other side, Lele, while he'd been terrible until about the last five games has put together a really good stretch of sea level play and sea level play is well above the replacement level. It's, and, and it's over a course of now, uh, I want to get this right. I think it's 97 snaps now. He's he's been playing at basically a, a, a middle of a C level as far as I've been grading it. How, how do you see those last five games on PFF? Uh, yeah, let me let me have a little quick look because I had actually didn't check to see how he. Uh... While you're doing that, I'll finish up with 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 Simpson here. One pressure, one quarterback hit, one and one six sacks for Simpson. Another holding penalty, three miss blocks, zero losses at the line of scrimmage. That's good. At least his miss blocks aren't losses at the line of scrimmage. Uh, four to six on pulls. In this game, we talked a little bit about the possibility of Cleveland replacing him. One of the things Simpson has done at a kind of serviceable level most of the time is to pull, but he's not particularly decisive on those pulls, is is my opinion, in terms of making sure he he makes a block when compared to a player like Moses, who usually is pulling further and is not any faster afoot. He probably is slower, uh, but still does a very good job of, of being decisive, maintaining momentum, doing the good things that help you when you pull. Uh, nine level two blocks, which is a ton for one game, by the way. One pancake, five highlights was one of the reasons why I gave him a big adjustment in this game. 
you mentioned one of the highlights. I want to let you tell the story of the play, but it was on the first Jackson TD run. I saw yeah, you had so, a tweet about it. Yeah, this is – I don't think it's a perfect play by him at all, um, but him and Ronnie Stanley pick up the stunt really nicely, swap it between each other. Simpson then gives up a little bit too much ground inside, and Lamar has to make a little – probably a half a half cut to get past it. But what I liked there was – Simpson then used the momentum of the the Texans defensive lineman against him. And as he's trying to reach to try and get any kind of grab on Lamar, he just makes sure to finish that block. So that all he could get on Lamar Jackson was a hand, and that's not going to be enough. So I, you know, not not a perfect play. They did a nice job passing over the passing over the stunt. And then Simpson did a good enough job initially and then finished it off. The the stunt handoff was one of the reasons why I end up giving him the highlight. Because if you, you stun handoff generally, if it's handled well, it is so difficult to do that with what the defense is trying to do to you. So the, the first thing defense is trying to do is mismatch depth between the two guys. So an underneath guy on a stunt or whatever, that's, that's, that's the first thing he's trying to do is create a depth mismatch where he's going to be at a big advantage once that other blocker off him gets peeled, but also just it's it's very hard if the two offensive linemen are not at the same depth for a handoff to occur, um, and it often means that that one lineman feels like they can't really make the exchange. They stay with their block, even if it means basically leaving the other guy hanging out to dry. Yep. the The other thing I loved in that play was uh, the out route on Isaiah Likely. Like that was entirely designed for let's create let's create space up the middle here mm-hmm. and just really nice play design. It was, it was it was a beautiful thing to watch. It's whenever Lamar gets free into level two, and and the the blocking at the line has either created it or or better yet, the the defensive players have run themselves out of position, which we've seen a lot from teams that play Lamar for the first time. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's 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 take a moment to talk about that because they're obviously they're going to meet the Chiefs for the first time. Um, They've seen Lamar before in previous years, but it's been what two years since they played the Chiefs, right? They didn't play him last year, I don't think. No, don't think so. Yeah, beat him two years ago. Yep, and didn't play him last year. And and it's, it's going to be a new for a lot of the Chiefs players, and even for the Chiefs coaches, it's going to be there's going to be some differences there. The team that they might have to face again if they if they get that far, well, I guess we'll worry about that on Super Bowl week is the 49ers, who have seen Lamar this year. Do you think it might? give them some advantages in trying to try to work out how they deal with him. I think it definitely gives you some advantage. I, if they, if they get through this game against the chiefs, it's a rematch in the Super Bowl either way. And I always think if you have a good defense, then the adjustments scare me a little bit. And the 49ers have enough good players on defense and also People talk about blowouts and they talk about the the Lions game and the 49ers game and the Dolphins game all in the same bubble. I don't think that's right. The 49ers game was a blowout by score, but it was a blowout because uh, a couple of drives at the start of the third quarter whereby the Ravens get a turnover, whereby they force the turnover, but they also get a little bit fortunate in the bounce of the ball. So it's not to say the Ravens didn't make a good play bounce the ball kind of you know favors them and all of a sudden the ravens have a have a big score lead and the game's out of out of reach for the 49ers and they're then chasing it and all those different things the miami game the detroit game and the seattle game those were blowouts whereby the ravens just dominated for for four quarters so that's where the the adjustments the 49ers could make 
and the fact that that wasn't as big a blowout as I think the scoreline suggests, that makes me a little more nervous if it winds up, if the Ravens get through this game and they play San Francisco. Think I'll be favoured in that game? I've thought about this a lot, and I honestly don't know if they will or not. I, I could see this being like a true pick'em. True pick'em. Yeah, wouldn't shock me. I'm, I'm really, I am really surprised by the the, the three and a half versus Kansas City. I think that number is too low, um, and, and and I think some of it is driven by save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Who Patrick Mahomes is. You know, and I always say... The line is is money weighted. It's not count of idiot, count of idiots weighted. So at some point, if I'm correct, then then sharp money should come in and and readjust that line. There has to be a certain amount of margin for it to be valuable enough for a sharp to get after that. Uh, so I just I, I'm I, I'm just I'm surprised. I would have predicted four and a half, probably maybe five in this game as being the spread, and and you know we're just not seeing it. No, no I, and I think you're right. I think it's I think it's Mahomes. I think it's that yeah. simple. Uh, so okay, uh, we got to the end of Simpson. Simpson an F plus D minus. He's right in that range, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fine tune that score for the article when uh, when we're done with that. Let's move over to Ty- Tyler Linderbaum. I thought he had a, a solid but unspectacular game in this. One pressure, one third of a sack. Now, how does somebody get a third of a sack? Let's talk about this. He got he got the phone booth pocketed, and he was really the first primary pressure on the play. Uh, Zeitler's guy got there first and and made the sack. Uh, Linderbaum had kind of held his guy up. Uh, in the cone for sure, and and definitely was was uh, creating a problem for Lamar. And then Simpson made it a little worse with the secondary closing of the other side, so he got one sixth of that sack. But uh, but that's how I had it scored for Linderbaum. T- talk a little bit about the process at PFF and how you guys would would grade that um, for Tyler. Yeah, so it's probably probably makes the most sense is if you you walk through like the first part. And then I'll kind of give you the PFF take on that and then each part. And that almost like, let's mirror each other almost in that sense. So you start with like the first part and then I'll try and try and match that as best I can. Okay. So, so he, he, as I saw the play, Zeitler's guy got free and was in closing in for the sack, but Linderbaum was also getting bold on the play. Let me go through with the, with the exact notes I have, because that's going to be the easiest way to do this. It's right here. So 64 bold by 94 to phone booth pocket, 70 beaten outside by 93. So it was Hinnish who got the sack and 76 bold by blitz 53. So that's Cashman coming from level two um, that, that closed off that backside of the pocket as well. So on the, on the Linderbaum front, um, and assuming that we were on the same page on the assessment of him being uh, beaten or impacted by the bull rush, the that's probably never going to be classed as a a pressure um, event on our end. It will be what we talked about earlier, like the pass rush win rate type thing, whereby it's a loss but not a, not a pressure given up. So that's something whereby it impacts the grade but doesn't impact the the raw stats. 
So there's there's underlying there is an underlying grade number being tossed in there for him. So what kind of one of my frustrations has been when people want to quote PFF numbers without context like that, and it's usually sacks that they're referring to. Which, by the way, sacks for a center. How many centers ever give up sacks? Period. Anyway, but but when they do, it's usually um, you know it's 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 usually pretty bad when they do it. And bad ones give up what four sacks in a season? Three, yeah, three and a half yeah, like four 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 or five sacks a year is bad for a center. Yeah. Or so yeah, yeah. Uh, seven missed blocks by Linderbaum in this game. Three of them were losses to the line of scrimmage. He had a lot of trouble finding a guy in level two in this game for whatever reason. But honestly, those those losses are less bad when that happens. Six level two blocks, uh, two out of two on poles, zero pancakes, three highlights in the game. C plus. I, I I'm looking at it. I might have been a little ungenerous in this, and I could probably give him a B minus with one extra point of adjustment because he didn't he wasn't run out of any pressures in this game. But he's right on that B minus C plus uh, range for me. And I think you. You guys probably had him grade a little bit higher than that a little bit but not not significantly so like we had him uh 82.7 in pass blocking 65.8 in run blocking so like pretty pretty solid game i think who he is as a player uh and this is this is meant a very much as a positive is he's kind of solid across the board doesn't make a lot of mistakes that sort of thing whereas that first season we talked about this was it, you know the stunt pickups, the kind of issues at the the um, point of the snap, things like that, really held him back. That's kind of gone this year, and there's just this offensive lineman who doesn't make a lot of mistake, is nice and nimble on his feet, all those different things. It's just rounding out into end of year two. I I wouldn't have him quite at the level that he uh, is being touted as as Pro Bowl, you know, potential All Pro type center, but he's pretty clearly on his way um, in that direction. Have you guys done some career pathing for centers that would tell you that first two years look like this, you can still expect a little bit of increase or it'd be really interesting to look at, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you grade you sell or, or, or collect similar players. Cause that's one of the things footballs does not have is good control groups, you know, for, for what you're testing. But it would be interesting to know if you guys had some good career pathing of PFF grades, say that could, Give us some indication of how much is yet to come for Tyler. Yeah, I, I know we do like in terms of college to pro projections, whereby you can see like similar players based on kind of certain aspects there. I need to actually look in behind the under the hood a little bit and see if we do similar um on the on, on the like pro to pro front um in terms of career development. All right. All right, great stuff. Really appreciate you going into depth on this with us. So, so Linderbaum, a C-plus for me. Move on to Zeitler here for a minute. Um, you know, I, the first thing is great to have Zeitler on the field again because he's the North Star of the Ravens' offensive line in so many ways. He's the guy who's, you know, been the consistent, fine performer. And not having him, you go all of a sudden from, you know, two guys who are good to really only one guy who has been exceptionally good. Moses has been pretty good too this year. I got to give him the credit. Um, but uh, Zeitler back um, uh, really looked pretty good in this game. The half sack we mentioned earlier, he was run out of two pressures by Lamar in this game, which is, you know, obviously he's not quite at his A game here. Missed four blocks, three lo- three losses at the line of scrimmage, one out of one on poles, four blocks in level two, no pancakes, no highlights. Um, still worked out to be a B uh, and in the middle of the B range, not a low B. Uh, he's on an incredible run since London where he's only had one C plus game 
during that entire time. This is the only time out of the A or B range from my perspective. Maybe talk a little bit about that from um, – I've actually – it's one game lower than that. He had one game that was a D during that time. But yeah. uh, I know BFF's got him with a with a great set of games too. Yeah, pretty pretty similar, especially I, – I mean, we have him with like his – um, good pass blocking games starting from kind of week four against the Browns. Uh-huh. Uh, th- this actually wound up being his lowest pass blocking game um, since week three against the Colts. Um, and that's just a couple of pressure events, the sack we had on him. Um, so for an interior offensive lineman, you know, we kind of talked about it there with Linderbaum, the pressure numbers and interior offensive linemen do have like a bit of a bigger impact. Um, but one of his, I think his highest run blocking grade of the year um so far so good really good solid player i mean given his age and the ravens not being willing to well we say the ravens not being willing to give him a contract extension i don't know how much of that was potentially tied to the the other more important contract extension that they had to to deal with throughout the year and that potentially taken up quite a lot of energy yeah I, I mean, I, I think that's that's certainly possible. They've got a lot of balls in the air right now. And it's, you know, it, it wasn't just Lamar's contract at the start of the year. Um, and now there's just a ton of free agency balls they're going to have to deal with uh, this offseason to try and figure out who can they get at a reasonable price. And just I'm afraid a lot of people are going to be leaving. I, I, I don't assign any real chance that Queen will be back at this point. I think the, the chance is pretty near zero on that. Um, Stone, I'd say also very limited. Is, is there a player that you think out of their free agent groups really makes a lot of sense that the, you think the Ravens will resign? The the high-profile ones, um, I think on the offensive side of the ball, it wouldn't surprise me to see a longer-term Odell Beckham deal if they can agree something that's more team-friendly. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, the high-profile player it feels like they're going to want to try and keep Justin Madabike around. Mm. Um, but on the the other um, potential there, Jadavion Clowney has bounced on one-year deal to one-year deal, and he's you know, made a lot of money. I'd be really intrigued to see if he actually would feel quite settled staying in Baltimore and you know not making quite the same. Maybe they do another kind of incentive-laden uh, type deal because um, he's almost like it's almost being treated like a mercenary. Um, since his first round contract wound up for bias, you know, go to this place, get that one year big money deal. And, you know, I think it started out as something whereby he was trying to parlay that into a huge long term deal and he just never quite hit that level. Well, now he's in his 30s and probably having the best year of his career, mm-hmm. uh, if not, if not very close to it. So I'd, I, I think they're going to really want to keep him around because he just, he just fits their um, identity really well. Yeah, I mean, all the Ravens sacks basically this year, and it's not quite all because they certainly get some off the slot that are quick one-man sacks, but almost all their their sacks are these compound pressure sacks. One guy gets there, moves the quarterback off the spot, somebody else cleans up, and Justin Matabike has been the beneficiary of a lot of that, you know, being the second man to the to the quarterback. Uh, you know, Brent Urban's gotten some sacks that way. Van Noy and Clowney have been exchanging sacks that way uh, in terms of missing the first and 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 having somebody else clean it up. It's, it's been a um, remarkable year that he exactly fits their needs there. He does fit their need, I think, pretty well in run defense. So I think sometimes his run defense gets a little overstated in terms of its value. Um, but I, I would love for them to to try and make that signing if they could. It's just they've got so little money to, to really yeah. work with. And, and you think about the, the signings that are yet to come. I'd love for them to get Matabike, but you know, 
do you want them to get mad at BK if it means they can't get a left tackle or it means they can't get uh, the big one? Um, they can't sign Hamilton. Yeah. Time cops. I mean, no way in hell. Yep. <laughs> it's a, uh, I, I'm, I, I think tag and trade of Matabike makes a lot more sense than just allowing him only to go for a compensatory pick, which I don't think is enough compensation. Yeah. And, and this is the, this is the reality of what happens when you have to pay a quarterback, right? You have mm-hmm. to start making a lot of different decisions and have to you know really be economical with what you have. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking at times, certainly uh, for teams that draft well. Zeitler be in this game. Let's move on quickly since we're dragging this out a little bit. But Moses, uh, I thought he looked uh, very good as primarily against Will Anderson on that on that right side of the offensive line. No negative events. Uh, Lamar did run him out of one pressure, so that'll show up on your PFF uh, totals, which which makes all kinds of sense. Six level two blocks, three pancakes, three out of three on poles, zero highlights. Moses, the polar is just amazing in terms of his uh, mobility. Um, and uh, uh, A, in this game, I know that says something different here on the notes that I sent you here, but that's not the correct grade for him, I assure <laughs> you. Um, a, in this game, a .94 after adjustment. Um, so a, a, a really nice game. And it did take away uh, a little bit of his adjustment for for the one pressure event, but he still is in solidly in the A range. So uh, uh, no doubt about keeping him for 2024. Uh, he's uh, he's a guy. Clearly, the Ravens have next year. After next year, they'll have to figure out how they're replacing him, or if maybe even if they want to extend him. It, the thing you talked about there, uh, Moses the puller is really good, and we always talk about decision making when it comes to quarterbacks, offensive linemen on pulls. The athleticism is important. Your ability to to make the blocks important. But decision-making is really important as well. And the two players we've talked about in this regard on this show, Simpson and Moses, probably the biggest difference between the two of them <laughs> is decision-making on pool. And, and it's not it's not deciding on who to block. It's also deciding on the angle and stuff you're going to take. Moses just takes some really nice angles as he makes the contact on blocks when he pulls. Uh, really nice player to watch on film. He's uh, I, I, I've I've made the call out there, but if anyone knows Morgan Moses personally, we'd love to kind of get his take on tackle play on the show during the offseason. Please send him a copy of this. And, and we want to spend some time with him talking about offensive line play and about what he looks to do and and how he maintains his mobility and, and, and does things at this age. But it'd be a very friendly show, I'm sure. Uh, and he's had a he's had certainly a great year for the Ravens. Uh, Patrick McCary, nine out of eleven blocks in left t- left tackle relief, no real problems. He's he's faced problems against some great pass rushers. Grenard did not have a great game. I did not feel. How did how did he grade out on PFF? I did not look for that. Uh, yeah, let me actually look up what the grade was. I don't think it was particularly high. Um, I think he was uh, he was very complimentary of the Ravens after the game. Very complimentary of um, Lamar. I have open right now. Jonathan Grenard, yeah, fifty four point five, and as a pass rusher, just forty. 40- 2.0 um one pressure on 22 pass rushing snaps so pretty pretty limited impact there yeah not what they needed to get out of one of their best guys um you know the the question about rotation came up from one of the listeners here and i want to make sure we we uh get this right because it's it's a good one um basically was along the lines of do you expect the rotation to continue in the playoffs um at offensive tackle and is there a pattern to rotation? I think there's there's two things about that. Why don't you take the part about do you expect it to continue during the during the playoffs? Because I do have some pattern things. So I I think I did. And when I saw that question, I was more 
yes, I think it will continue in the playoffs. And then I looked at it in this and it was really just one drive that McCarry actually rotated in. And my hypothesis there would be, have they done that? And Stanley has been like, look, actually, I feel fine. Like, I don't feel like I need any kind of rest. Or they felt like Stanley was playing to the point that, you know, he wasn't um, in any way restricted. And then Moses, I think he actually only missed three snaps. So it was like a very, very brief move there. So I, I, I feel like unless you feel you have to, and especially now you have one game this week, so maybe we see some rotation here. The last game of the season, they're going to have a week's rest if they win against the Chiefs. You know, that's when I don't know that you need to rotate as much there. Great question. Appreciated MD Bitzel for for sending that in. In terms of one pattern they use, they they use um, non overlapping series of replacement for Moses and uh, for sorry sorry for Faalele and McCary to be in the game. So they don't want them both to be in the game at the same time. And week after week, this has shown up, and you could probably see it in patterns of of, of plays that you're looking at there that they they stagger series is where they're uh, in replacing the big two. Uh, let's call it Falele, three out of three at tackle. And then he was two snaps at left guard and, uh, at the very end of the game, and he allowed 1.5 penetrations. I did not see why Simpson left the game, but I know Simpson was kind of holding his hip earlier in the game as if he was hurt there, and he left for the last two plays, which is not normal to leave in the middle of a series like that. Uh, have you heard anything, or did you see it at the time and note it? Must have, yep. must have mute by mistake there. Yeah. Um, I uh, I only noticed when I was looking up ahead of this. I didn't, I didn't realize Fowley had played um, any snaps at left guard. So uh, I haven't seen anything that suggests he will be out. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting, interesting way to go about it. Yeah. Uh, Cleveland was in once as a sixth offensive lineman, their only jumbo snap. And they finished with the last, last seven snaps at right guard, made seven out of eight blocks. You know, he's he's played well enough in this very limited duty. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons I think they're not making the changes, I think they look at Cleveland as more a natural right guard. So maybe he takes over there next year. And maybe Voris becomes a left guard, which Voris seems to have a lot of those right guard um, skill set of being extremely powerful and being able to torque that lineman opposite you and, and, uh, and do some of the things to really redirect that, that defensive tackle that you need to, to open the front gate on run plays. Uh, Cleveland, maybe they're thinking, you know, the guy's never going to have the feet. He can't move over to left guard. Let's not start it now. But another piece of this could be Zeitler that they don't think Zeitler can handle the job at left guard. Cause I, I mean, he's been a right guard his whole career, but so had Yada until he had to move there once for injury would it be unreasonable to ask Zeitler to move to the left side here if you really wanted to get a better guard in the game, uh, you know, to replace Simpson? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be really intriguing to see. I know a lot of offensive linemen on Twitter have, you know, made comments in the past about how switching sides is really incredibly difficult to do. So maybe, maybe their way of approaching that is that they don't want to weaken two spots because if you, you know, if, if Cleveland, well, I, I I struggle to see how Zeitler would be a worse left guard than Simpson is right now, but maybe the the composite you actually overall reduce your guard play. Yeah, yeah, well, it's certainly a possibility. Well, let's move on. Talk a little bit about the skill position players. Uh, who we we've talked about some of these already, but who would you like to talk about? Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm going to bring up a Nelson Aguilar here. Um, he is a player. I was talking to some people before the game and. 
it was people who were set in DFS lineups. So people, non-Ravens fans were asking me how I thought he would do in the game. And I said, he's either coming out of this game with a touchdown, 40 yards, or not being targeted once. Because it just feels like he pops up at, at points in the game. And I thought there were actually a couple of um, points in the game that he didn't get thrown the ball, but he was open. And I, I'm pretty certain we talked about this last time I was on. The difference in Nelson Aguilar being your fourth wide receiver, I think technically in this game he was actually third because he outsnapped um, Beckham, if I'm mm-hmm. remembering correctly, versus where they were last year when Demarcus Robinson was wide receiver one. Now, obviously, that was injuries through um, Rashad Bateman, but just such a better position for the Ravens to be in um, at the receiver position. Yeah, he de- he definitely he's a guy off the bench who who gives him something. So I I think you were in the middle here, right? Two out of four targets caught for eleven yards and a touchdown, right? So yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah, so it was a uh, great great game for him anyway to 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 get free in the end zone on that play. Um, let's talk uh, let's talk briefly about Cook, just because I think uh, obviously it could become a more significant player if. Um, uh, if Edwards is hurt, but, uh, I, I, you know, he's only a year removed from having 5,000 yards over four years. He's only one year removed from that. And yet it still seems like he's not at all the same runner he used to be. Yeah. It very much seems like the same burst isn't there. I think it was really nice that he did have that one big run, but the rest of it very much backed up the belief that, he is RB3 in this offense in the playoffs, not anything more than that. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, we won't, you know, honestly, hopefully we won't see him too much. If the Ravens don't see any snaps from Dalvin Cook, it probably doesn't have to be injury based. If, if basically all of the significant snaps go to Edwards or Hill the next two weeks, it's probably a good thing. I, the only, the only uh, thing I would say there is if we see a lot of Dalvin Cook in quarter four, it hopefully means that things have gone very, very well. Uh, I guess I'll ask you one other question is, does it matter if Odell Beckham is healthy for the rest of the postseason? I mean, there's only one or two games, so no, it doesn't matter massively. Um, I think it's nice having him there as, as um, part of the rotation. Um, But again, overall the group is just in so much of a better position than it was in in previous years. Um, I, I do think we get one big game from him. Um, at some point over these next two, or at least one big play, but we'll see. That would certainly be cool. And it, it would, whatever his future is with the team, it would really cement his place in Ravens lore if he were to do that in the playoffs. I mean, Anquan Bolden is still remembered in in that sense as being a guy who, you know, he was not a bad regular season receiver. Uh, he'll always be the guy who got traded for a sixth round draft pick. And what the hell were the Ravens doing when they're really just cutting him and salvaging the, yeah. the, the value? But but that postseason is was a thing of beauty, and you know it. it, it Flacco is mentioned alone, but Flacco and and Bolden and Jacoby Jones were really the three big stars uh, for the Ravens in that postseason. They were all absolutely terrific. Bolden was just the perfect receiver for where Joe Flacco throws the football to. He he's always thrived with throw it to a point, the guy will go up and win the ball. He would he would have loved playing with uh, Mark Andrews for a good number of years. He would have loved playing with Isaiah Likely. Anqua Bolden was just that, kind of put it up to that spot and let me go and win it type receiver. Yeah. 
great player, that's for sure. Let's go to the mailbag, get a couple more questions here. I think we've covered enough of the skill position players, plus there's some in the questions um, here. Here's one from, let's see, this is from at JTOR10, who says, what's the real difference in a halftime adjustment and just adjusting between drives? If the opposing team holds the ball, isn't that long enough for you to make an adjustment on the fly? I love the adjustments. I just don't want to wait any longer than it's necessary uh, versus a better team. Great question, by the way. Yeah, and this is one I I don't know the actual answer to it, so I'll just give what my perception of it is. Um, my understanding is just that you want to be able to actually talk over the adjustments rather than Todd Munkin dictates, here's what we're going to do. Like Munkin, I'm assuming, wants to get five minutes to talk with Lamar in the uh, locker room look at stuff together and say this is what i'm seeing is this what you're seeing rather than phoning down and and because of the quick change situation that's potential could potentially happen you can actually like if you're trying to rush you can you know lead to some mistakes and stuff like that so um that that's kind of my understanding of why it is more of a, a halftime adjustment that seems to be how they approach these things I, I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. And we've seen booth coordinators, which Mike Nolan was. If you go back and watch that 2004 Jets game, you know him calling down to Bart Scott and telling him, hey, we're out of slot cornerbacks. You're on 83 in the slot. It was Crebet at the time. Uh, if, if you know, on, on the next series here kind of thing. Uh, it, those kind of phone calls are great and they give you a lot of insight into things. But they're also, it, it's, it, it doesn't give you a lot of time for more specific talking through film and whatnot. The other thing I'll, I'll say is in an analytics driven um, time, that headset is not open for just anyone to talk on. And I don't know how many channels there are, or if they have, you know, one channel for defense and one channel for offense that they can have their own separate conversations. But if there's only one conversation, which wouldn't shock me because the NFL probably wants to monitor what's said on that thing. But if there's only one conversation, then you have to have a period of time where you can get the information together and sent down in a way that summarizes what's happening in the game. And I would think that would be halftime is the obvious time to do that. And I would think you might be interrupting somebody else's speech if you tried to do it while the, while the other side of the ball was on the field. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't really consider that. Um, okay. Let's see. Let's see. We'll got, maybe take one more good mailbag question. Um Two wide receiver related questions from from Randy Morgan. This is J.R. Morgan 16. Uh, he says, Do you think the limited OBJ snaps on Saturday were just a game or just game state related? Or maybe they, I guess they're injury related is the other possibility. Sense of that? I, to me, it felt like it was um, game state related. I think they wanted to go heavier in the second half. Um, and you know, that that was where that impact went. Um, I didn't see anything that suggested he wasn't healthy um, and certainly seemed to be bouncing around happily enough at the end of the game. Um, I just think at the start of the second half, because I looked at his, his snap breakdown and it was um, way more in the first half than the second half. And I'm going to assume they had more of the ball in the second half just based on the three long drives. Yep. Maybe it wasn't. So you know you work out his percentage in each half and you know either either it was some kind of he didn't feel right injury wise or they wanted to go heavier and they prioritized other other players okay all right that makes a lot of sense um number two is i think something you could probably answer from what you have for largerius's sneed's play but it says will sneed follow a particular wide receiver 
like Stingley on flowers, or will he stick to one side? Um, I, I, I don't have an honest opinion on this, and I don't know if you look at the PFF stats, if you see a lot of LCB, RCB, or even some SCB in his detailed positions. So so you can. So I don't – what you can't get is if that is specifically because he's following players. Um, there is some stuff we have in other parts of the website where you can – look up um like wide receiver, i think it's wide receiver cornerback matrix or something similar mm-hmm. um but you can look um at detailed positions and he does so he's got um over a thousand snaps including the playoffs as a wide corner it's like 602 on the left 424 on the right so he splits either side that would suggest that he is tracking doesn't definitely mean it because sometimes it's to do with um like different parts of the formation and stuff like that but he, I'm pretty certain he did play a lot in the slot early in his career. Um, is not now. He's almost exclusively an outside cornerback now. Um, to me, that's really interesting because I, Flowers is probably the only one that you would consider following, um, and I think maybe he will. But the Ravens' most dangerous receiver right now, I think, is actually Isaiah Likely. So having having Sneed track someone actually doesn't have the same impact that it would have say with the Miami Dolphins where he was able to have a big impact on Tyreek Hill. Now a, a big possibility is that Sneed could sometimes you send that great island corner, the guy you think is as the, the highest value there, to cover the guy who's the number two receiver. So it could be Bateman and the X that they really try and blanket with Sneed. And it looks like there has been some chasing going on. The one thing I'll say about Legere Sneed is he's got a ton of penalties this year. Um, you know, I, I don't know how the, he's, he gets, you know, a free pass for all that penalty play because he's got almost as many penalties as their tackle um, who, who leads the NFL, I believe, in, in penalties. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. – and like, so PFF grade-wise, that's why it's lower than probably the perception of him is this year because he's only allowed 36 receptions for 302 yards. So it's not like he's allowing uh, a ton of yards and a ton of plays. Um, but we have him – um, I don't know the exact number of penalties, but those penalties will drag that grade down a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go back to the Ravens here in a little bit. We usually finish with a 3-2-1 in terms of MVPs. Do you have something like that put together? I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't, but... Uh, uh, I would uh, definitely Lamar. Okay. Um, start with number... Th- well, you do it. Yeah. You're the guest. Yeah. So, so okay. Let, let's. I've given away. I've given away number one. Oh no! Uh, you gave away number one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I'm guessing it was going to be pretty obvious. Uh, yeah. Overall, anyway. Um, I would say three. I thought Clowney was tremendous against the run in this game. Sorry, offense only. Oh, sorry. Um, offense only. Uh, Isaiah Likely number three. Okay. Good choice. Uh, he definitely was considered. Ronnie Stanley number two. Okay. Lamar number one. Okay. I have Stanley and Moses. I cheated a little bit with, with number two. I thought um, Justice Hill deserved yep. recognition for his game. Obviously, he had a, a little bit bigger impact on the game in terms of the yardage. Uh, obviously, likely had the touchdown, which is just that that had a lot of value in and of itself and, and another big play. Uh, he's He is just such a fine player right now. But, you know, in terms of importance of the play, I, I might – be tempted to put Stanley and Moses at number one for what it means for the rest of the regular season. So if we're looking, you know, we talked about predictive value earlier. If if this is what Stanley and Moses are going to play like for the rest of the of the of the postseason, the chances of the Ravens hoisting Lombardi has gone way up from their play in this game. I think that's fair. Yeah. 
Alrighty. Such a pleasure to talk football with you whenever I get the chance, Gordon. I'll try and make a point that that we get together at some point during the Super Bowl if you can. If you if you if you've got a craps roll in you on uh on Saturday night, the night before, we'd love to we'd love to do that. That's kind of a traditional thing when we go out there with friends. But uh uh tell folks where they can find your work online. Yeah, you'll find me uh Twitter slash X PFF underscore Gordon, and you'll find everything I write on PFF.com. All right. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, hit me up. DMs are always open on Twitter. Looking for off-season ideas, looking for ideas before the Super Bowl. Promise I'll get back to you very quickly. Gordon, thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.